You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. In recent decades, there's been one thing depicted as the Grinch who caused heart disease more than any other thing, and it's a dirty C word. I don't know what C word you're thinking about your dirty mind. I'm talking about cholesterol. Cholesterol has been depicted as a major causative agent in heart disease for decades, and it's driven a multi-multi-billion dollar statin industry that's making on average about $30 billion a year to try to eliminate this Grinch. The question is, has it been working? The question is, is cholesterol really the villain that it's been depicted to be? And right off the bat, there's a major flaw in this theory surrounding cholesterol that needs to be talked about a little bit more. And it's highlighted by researchers at UCLA. And this was all the way back in 2009, we had this information. Looking at the data of over 130,000 patients, revealing that nearly 75% of the people hospitalized with a heart attack did not even have high cholesterol. And this thing that's been deemed to be a major causative agent with heart attacks, 75% of the folks hospitalized with a heart attack not even having high cholesterol, what's going on here? I thought that cholesterol was clogging the arteries and leading to this incident. Now again, there is nuance here. There are some risk factors associated with cholesterol, but the story is so much bigger so much more expansive, so much more beautiful. And you're gonna learn about that today with somebody who's really the leading authority in this subject matter, who actually wrote the book on the subject matter. And I'm really excited about this conversation. I think it's absolutely gonna blow you away. And just to give you a little bit about what to look forward to, I am so massively interested in the science surrounding longevity. There's this whole category of science looking at this term anti-aging. But in reality, what we're really looking at is not just extending our lifespan, but extending our health span. And for me, I still want to see things firsthand. The data is incredible. That's one thing. But to see it play out in the real world, we have to see truly who's actually living longer, but not just living longer, but living healthfully. And our guest today is one of those examples. Now in his mid-70s, today you're going to experience his energy, experience his insights, his wisdom the intelligence, all these things, whereas today in his age bracket, it's far from the norm, but it gives us massive hope of what is possible for all of us. And so really, really excited about this conversation. And this is one, seriously, it is an instant classic and is addressing one of the biggest issues in our culture today. The number one killer in our culture today being heart disease. On average, we've got about 630,000 deaths a year in the United States caused by heart disease. 630,000 a year. This past year, 2020, it's almost 700,000. It jumped up. And it's this thing that, again, it's this massive issue, but it's hardly gotten a headline. Everything else has been focused on other things. And in reality, again, this thing is just chugging along and taking out so many of our citizens, our friends and family, and we can do something about this. But we have to expand the conversation. We have to look at what went wrong because this issue 
affected such a smaller percentage of our citizens just a few decades ago, you know, 50, 60 years ago. We've just seen things continually jump up, but we've seen our life span expand, yes, but our deaths associated with all manner of chronic diseases, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, cancer, these things just have continued to climb. And so the argument is that we're not living longer, we're dying longer. And we're not really addressing the underlying issues. What are causing these epidemics of health issues? Let's talk about these things. Let's address these things that make us more resilient against chronic diseases and infectious diseases. So again, that's what it's really all about. I'm really, really excited about this conversation today. Now, one of the most simple things that we can do that we understand about human health, if we're talking about building blocks, if we're talking about the things that run processes, these are things that many of us are taught about as basics in school, but we really don't expand that out into our lives in a major way, simply because this is too simple and it often gets looked past. And what I'm talking about are the compounds from our diet that we need to extract from our diet that enable our cells to talk to each other, that enable this electric currency that the human body is running off of, this conductivity, if we're talking about our brain cells being able to communicate, signal transduction, the list goes on and on, we have to have electrolytes. These are minerals that carry an electric charge. And for instance, if you hear somebody like our guest today speaking and his level of cognition just being so remarkable, you know that it's firing on all cylinders. And it's critical for us to understand that our brain is massively dependent upon electrolytes and these electrical signals to communicate throughout all of our brain cells. Take sodium, for example. Not only does this electrolyte help to maintain proper water balance in our body and our tissues overall, but also in the brain, which is mostly water. Our brain is mostly water. But a study conducted by researchers at McGill University found that sodium functions as a literal, quote, on-off switch in the brain for specific neurotransmitters that support cognition and optimal cell communication, optimal function. And these electrolytes are also found, specifically sodium, to help to protect the brain against numerous diseases like epilepsy, like neuropathic pain. Now, sodium is just one electrolyte, and we often attribute sodium and salt. We use them interchangeably, but these are two different things. Right? That's sodium and chloride if we're talking about common table salt, but there's many different types of salt. There's magnesium salts as well, potassium salts but we tend to think about sodium as that primary salt. And the majority of sodium that folks are consuming in our culture, upwards of about 70 to even 80% of the sodium we're taking in is from processed foods. It's from processed foods. So when we start to move away from that stuff that has all these other negative health ramifications, our sodium intake drops dramatically. And that can actually have some detrimental impacts on our body and on the function of our brain because we need that sodium, but let's get it from higher quality sources. That's the key. In fact, a study conducted by researchers at Harvard Medical School, and this was published in the journal Metabolism, found that low sodium intake directly increases insulin resistance in healthy test subjects. Now, we typically hear just one side. We hear about the potential negative effects of sodium in regards to cardiovascular health. Yet a meta-analysis, and this was published in the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, uncovered that Study participants proactively placed on a low-sodium diet did have slightly lower blood pressure in the short term. This is the key, in the short term. 
but found that the restricted sodium also led to elevated triglycerides, elevated stress hormones, and accordingly, elevated blood pressure as a side effect. There's nuance here. There's a balance of sodium that is required for optimal function in human health from our blood to our brain, from our muscular function to the energy production of our cells. The mitochondria require electrolytes. This sodium potassium pump is required for your mitochondria to work in the first place to create energy for your body. And also another one of these electrolytes, magnesium, is literally required to make that energy currency from the mitochondria, the ATP, the adenosine triphosphate, the cellular currency that sustains our lives. Magnesium is required because magnesium is used as an enzyme cofactor that enables our mitochondria to make copies of itself. That is so important and so powerful. And yet, this is the number one mineral deficiency in our world today, with about 60% of US citizens being chronically deficient in magnesium. And our electrolytes overall are a major, major issue. So what do we do about this? Well, fortunately, electrolytes are so much easier to procure today, but we wanna make sure that it's not coming along with the things that are detrimental to our cognitive performance, that are detrimental to our blood pressure and our blood sugar with these different electrolyte products, you know, we think about these sport, quote, sports drinks, you know, that again, was part of my culture just growing up. When I was trying to be healthy, instead of getting a soda, I was getting a Powerade or a Gatorade, which was having the same amount of sugar as my 100% juice or the soda. And it's because of the marketing. And again, we've got to make a shift and reframe these things and not villainize the things that are really helpful, which these electrolytes are critical. The electrolytes that I use today is put together in the optimal ratios. If we're talking about the sodium, the potassium, the magnesium, what is the ideal ratio? And this is based off the data of thousands of test subjects to find out what that ratio really is for optimal performance, for our muscular function, for our cognitive function, and overall, the communication with all the cells in our bodies. Again, this sodium potassium pump is a primary activator of cellular processes. The electrolytes that I use without any artificial ingredients, any artificial sweeteners, is from Element. That's L-M-N-T. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model, and you're going to get to try Element for free. All right, for free. They're going to actually send you some samples of Element to try for free. All you need to do is pay for shipping and they're gonna send some right out to you. All right, so take advantage of this. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model ASAP and take advantage. It's one of my favorite things right now. I can't tell you all of the incredible stories that have been coming in for folks utilizing this incredible electrolyte product from Element. And the wonderful thing about it is, and I, I, I couldn't believe that they would actually do this, when I reached out like, hey, I'm really enjoying this. Can we do something for my audience? Get them some kind of a discount. They said, hey, we're gonna let folks try for free. So take advantage, go to Drink Element. That's again, drinklmnt.com forward slash model. Take advantage of this free gift they're gonna send right out to you. And again, this is just one aspect, building blocks of human health and performance. And there's so much more. We're gonna expand on that massively today. And again, looking at one of these culprits in human health, but you're gonna find out today, it doesn't operate in a vacuum. It's affecting so many different things about us that we often overlook. And so before we do that, let's jump into the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another 
five-star review titled Valuable Use of My Time by Camel Zilk. I'm a family medicine PA and I absolutely love this show. I'm so thrilled that Sean uses viable studies to support his info. It's not light and fluffy, but it's tangible and something I utilize with my patients. Thank you for providing this resource. It's truly my honor. Thank you so much for sharing that over on Apple Podcasts. It's truly an honor. And listen, if you yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. I appreciate it immensely. And now let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is Dr. Johnny Bowden, and he's a board certified nutritionist and author of 15 books, including the bestsellers, The 150 Healthiest Foods on Earth, The Great Cholesterol Myth, and the bestselling weight loss program, The Metabolic Factor. Dr. Bowden has been featured on a myriad of television shows and major media, including The Dr. Oz Show, The Doctors, ABC, CNN, Fox News, NBC, the list goes on and on. He's also an incredible speaker who's featured at conferences all over the world. He's been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, The Daily Beast, Men's Health, Prevention Magazine, O Magazine, and so much more. Now he's here on the Model Health Show to share his powerful insights on one of the most important topics in health and wellness today, which is the topic of cholesterol. So let's jump into this conversation with the incredible Dr. Johnny Bowden. Welcome to the Model Health Show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Listen, I've got a ton of questions for you. I can't wait. First thing I wanna talk about, one of the most misunderstood aspects of health, nutrition, the human body is cholesterol. It is, indeed. Let's kick things off by talking about the roles that cholesterol plays in the body. Okay, but let's start with the role it doesn't play. Okay. It doesn't cause heart disease. So oh, let's be yeah, very wow. clear about that before we even talk about all the good big stuff statement. It yeah, it does not cause heart disease, ladies and gentlemen. We've been told a very big myth, and I'm sure we're going to get into that. But what it does do, uh, it's a parent molecule for a lot of things we need, including vitamin D, by the way, and including the sex hormones. Whenever I tell people about that and the connection to the sex hormones, they always pay particular attention because... All of these things are connected. It, it isn't, to me, a coincidence that half the men in America are on uh, erectile dysfunction pills and also on statins. They are very connected, as we'll see when we talk about statin drugs in general. But cholesterol is this very important molecule that you need for thinking and memory, that you need for your immune system, that you need to make your hormones, and that you need to make vitamin D. Mm. It's a parent molecule for all those things. When I used to do these things in person and do lectures and stuff, there was, used to be an old commercial that showed, this is your brain on drugs. With the, I would go, this is your brain with cholesterol, looks great, like a balloon, and then you prick it. That's what your brain looks like without cholesterol, you're mm. dead. Mm. So it is a vitally important molecule. How we ever got on this boneheaded mission to reduce it to vanishingly low levels that actually create an entire different class of risk factors, how we ever got there is a very interesting story. It's been told by me. It's been told by Nina Teichloch in her book, The Big Fat Lie. The history of how we got into this insane position uh, has been told many times and we can go over it, but it's wrong. It's simply wrong. And, you know, we live in L.A. and, and we have seen in, in real time, in a short period of time, how information has changed on COVID. When, when it first came out, everybody, we thought it was all the surfaces and everybody wore gloves and we couldn't touch anything in the grocery store. And then we found out that that wasn't right. And we adapted and nobody wears gloves anymore, right? 
This has not happened with cholesterol. Mm. The information has changed. It's there. We show it in our book. We're not the only ones. People have talked about this. We've been misled that this is the, should be the target for heart disease prevention. But yet, we're still wearing the gloves. It's as if that never happened. And people are just going on, doing it the usual way, measuring cholesterol in an antiquated way, good and bad. It's just 1960s nonsense. And then prescribing very strong drugs based on the results of an ineffective test, looking for a market that really doesn't really cause heart disease in the first place. Oh, this is so good. Listen, we're going to talk about some more updated data that it can give us for sure, okay. because cholesterol is a factor, Absolutely. but not in the way that we think. That's precisely, you, you couldn't have said it better. I've got it to ask you factor, about this. Not in the way that we think. I've got to ask you, what is cholesterol? Because when we hear cholesterol, we tend to think of HDL and LDL, mm -hmm. but those are not cholesterol. Let's well, talk about that's that. not all there is to cholesterol. Right. So that's one of the reasons that the, the test is invalid. So let me, let me give you a little bit of it, just a 15 second elevator speech on how this test became a, a thing. Back when I was a kid, they had health fairs and you would go and you would learn about these different things that could affect your health, like alcohol and cholesterol. And there would be somebody in a lab coat and they'd do a little fingerprint. It was a demonstration to educate the public. And they'd do a little fingerprint and they'd put it on a little ink blot and say, oh, Mrs. Jones, your cholesterol, 210. Very good. Good job. Next person. And they would do this total cholesterol number. And when I said, by the way, 210, 220, and they'd say good, that's because in those days, 240 was good. And that was the number. They've been dumbing it down and making it lower and lower and adding 10 million patients for statin drugs every time they lower it. But 240 was, in fact, the, the norm. And some years later, when they started actually looking at cholesterol in, in, in more modern technology with microscopes, they said, you know, it doesn't go in the bloodstream because it's, it's hydrophobic. It, it, it needs to travel in a container or it would just dissolve. And, it just, and the container is called a lipoprotein. That's the L and HDL and LDL. The second L stands for lipoprotein. One is high density, one is low density. And... Those things seem to act differently in the body. I don't know. One of them kind of takes cholesterol away and one takes it to the organ. Let's call one of them the good one and one of them the bad one. It was the roughest, most simplistic kind of distinction. But it recognized that there are different size or different types of lipoproteins in the body. Right. At so least those two. Are the, those are the carriers. Those are the carriers. Very important that those are the carriers. Those are the boats. Cholesterol is the cargo. All of the new information, as we're going to talk about, has indicated that what we should be looking at are the boats, not what's in them. So you can't just put the cargo into the water, basically. You can't put the cargo into the water. Think of it this way. It's a boat, right. and cholesterol are the towels that are in the washroom. Now, if you just throw them in the water, they're, just going to, they're not going to get where they're supposed to go. But in the container of a boat, they get there very safely because they're protected. But if you're in charge of a marina and you want to prevent accidents, what do you care about? What's being carried in the washroom of the boat or how many boats are in the water? Mm. You're a bouncer in a bar. You want to know how many people are in there because the more people that are in there, the more likelihood, even if they're all wonderful people, somebody's going to step on somebody's toe. Somebody's going to spill a drink. And guess what? A fight's going to break out. Same thing if you're managing a huge crowd at a stadium. So what we now know is that what's important is not the cargo, 
not the towels in the washroom, but what's in, how many boats are in the water? And that's what modern cholesterol tests tell us. Now, at the time, they said, okay, well, there's two different sized boats. We'll call one good and one bad. And that was an improvement because if you remember cell phones, <laughs> there are pictures and you can Google this. In the 80s, when they first had, there were satellite phones, they were the size of a brick. They were the size of a Buick. And you see these shots of businessmen in New York City walking with the status symbol of a, a brick this big. When they made the flip phone, that was a huge improvement. Would you want to use a flip phone today in the day of the Galaxy 9 and the iPhone 12 Pro? You have to hit the thing three times to get a, a, a digit. That's what we're doing when we're testing good and bad cholesterol. Mm -hmm. We now know, because we have the ways to measure it, that there's 13 different types of cholesterol. There's not only HDL, there's HDL 2A, 2B, there's 3A, there's LDL A, LDL B, oxidized LDL. There's, there's 13 different subfractions. They behave differently. Why we're measuring and prescribing based on this 1963, you know, yeah. good and bad is it would be like giving medical diagnosis is based on short and tall. It's, we have 30,000 genes. We've decoded the genome. And we're going to do short and tall for a medical diagnosis? That's what we're doing with cholesterol. Wow. And that's, that's why that test is obsolete. And that's why I'm so passionate about getting people to recognize. Go to yeah. your doctor. If you're on a statin drug, most of you are probably being overprescribed. Some of you that aren't on a statin drug might be being underprescribed. Why? Because the test doesn't tell you if you need one. Mm. Wow. This is so important. So important. You know this is a big, big thing right now, still to this day, and I know this is why you're so passionate about it, with understanding what cholesterol is, how to measure it. And just to go back to that analogy, which I love so much of cholesterol being akin to the towels on the boat versus the boat being the carriers themselves exactly. and us being more mindful of how many boats are in the water, that being our bloodstream, if we're talking about the water. That's right. And those carrier molecules. So we've got LDL, we've got HDL, and we've just kind of cut it down the line. This is good, this that's, is bad. That's it. When in fact, and let's talk a little bit about that, LDL being labeled so simplistically as bad when LDL is playing a role, oh, an yeah. important role in the body. They all play a role in the body. There's no question about it. But there are some of those particles, those, those lipoproteins, doctors call them particles. Some of them are small. Right. And they tend to get stuck in places they don't belong. Those are kind of the bad guys. Some of them are big fluffy things that look like cotton balls and do no damage and don't get stuck anywhere. We need to know what kind of LDL. It's not enough to know that you have high LDL. You might be all good LDL, if you will. Uh, so we need to know that. And those are all in the new tests. And I want to make sure, at least that we get this running through line, that the irony of all this is that cholesterol isn't really, even if we measure it correctly, mm -hmm. it's one risk factor, it's important. But when we looked, when we revised the great cholesterol myth, yeah. and we looked at, we had more time to look at all the evidence that's been done since 1970s, it became very clear to us that there's a bigger risk factor for heart disease that no one's looking at, and that's hiding in plain sight, and that can be turned around with diet and lifestyle, and nobody's paying attention until your cholesterol goes up or your A1C goes up and the doctor says, hey, you know, you really need to get you on some diabetes medicine. This stuff shows up earlier. It's called insulin resistance. Just give me time to explain it because that is what we need to be looking at, not cholesterol. And if we are gonna look at cholesterol, let's at least look at it in the right way with yeah. the right test. 
Yeah, please. We're, we're, we're going to get to that for sure. But I want to, I think it's really important for everybody to understand because it's so pervasive in our culture that cholesterol is this really big villain causing heart disease. Yeah. Where did this idea originate? Where did all this come from? So the history of this is that um, back in the 50s and 60s, there was a research physiologist named Ansel Keys. And uh, around that time, and the, the context is important because we had a president at that time, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Republican president, who you, people who were born like after 90, you can't even imagine a bipartisan kind of country where everyone loved Eisenhower. He was a beloved guy. He had been a hero as a general. He was a kind man. He was just a good guy and everyone liked him. There was no anti, you know, mm -hmm. and he had a heart attack in office and the country went, what? They, heart attacks, 1950s, 1960s, you know, the profession of cardiology didn't exist before the early part of the 20th century. It's not like everyone knew about heart disease. And here's this guy, he's a general. He's, now he did smoke, there were other things. We didn't know all about that stuff then. Um, and he has a heart attack and people were frantic. Think the COVID thing. It's like, what do we do? Oh, people in danger. And all of a sudden there was a lot of emphasis on heart disease and looking at the statistics and they're finding out that young men are coming back from the war and they have plaque in their arteries. We've got an epidemic of heart disease on our hands, ladies and gentlemen, what are we going to do? And the demand for answers, much like with COVID, exceeded the science. We don't have time to figure this out. What do you think we should do? And into that abyss, walks this guy, Ansel Keys. He's a physiologist. He's not an MD. He's not a nutritionist. He's a physiologist. He was very prestigious and very powerful. And he had a theory. And his theory was based on the fact that he and his wife went to Italy and all these people looked so healthy. And there was the sunshine and he was just completely entranced with this and thought there was something about the diet of these people that makes them so healthy and lovable and, and, and we're falling apart here in America and they don't have heart disease. I know these people don't eat any saturated fat and their cholesterol. That's, he had that theory. He didn't have evidence for it, but he believed it. And as we've all learned, a, a politician or a, a public personality with power, determination, and being convinced they're right can influence a lot of things. So Ansel Keys goes to the World Health Organization. He has a chart. And he says, look at this. I've got proof. You look at all these countries. Heart disease goes down. The less fat they eat, the less heart disease they have. Look at Japan. And the more fat they eat, look at the United States, the more heart disease. Clearly, it's fat and cholesterol. And the, the World Health Organization kind of laughed at him because the data was, <laughs> was the equivalent of like a check. It was a correlation thing. And he left out all the countries that didn't agree with that hypothesis. So there were like 22 countries that they had data for as far as, you know, how much fat they ate and how much cholesterol. And, and he just picked the six that showed that straight line. Mm -hmm. um, they kind of laughed at him. He was, he didn't take kindly to that. This has all been documented because people were there at they still were alive. They're in the nineties now, but they've all said, yeah, Ansel, he didn't like to be criticized. He didn't like to be laughed at. So he designs a study called the seven countries study. That is the basis of our dietary advice for the past 60 years. And the seven countries study was a designed study that looked at seven countries and their dietary patterns and their levels of heart disease. 
And he was able, by convoluting that data and picking just those countries, to show what looked like a fairly clear relationship between how much fat people ate and how much heart disease they, they actually had. This study has not only been quoted and, and used more than any other study in nutrition, but it's also been reanalyzed. And I don't even think it could get published today. It's that bad. One of his samples was done during Lent when people weren't eating. I mean, how is that mm. representative of anything? They did not look at stress. They did not look at patterns of eating. They did not look at microbes. They didn't know anything about that. It was simply an observational study. And what he did, and it's been shown a million times, he said, well, how come he left these people out? He left out anything that did not fit the hypothesis. But he had a massive published study. He was a prestigious researcher. And he got this on the basis of this. With a lot of controversy, he got the guidelines that reflected that accepted as the dietary guidelines. So we should eat less fat because we know it causes heart disease. Again, there were other people saying there's no science. And so you observed a bunch of people and their eating habits. It's, you may have published it and it looks very impressive and you've got a lot of people working on it. But it's an observational study that you didn't control for 30 different variables. Didn't matter. It got in there. And it became the basis of the consensus committee in the 80s. And they said, this is what we're going to recommend. People don't eat saturated fat. And they don't eat cholesterol. And everything will be fine. And the research since then has shown that that's the biggest crock of you know what in the world. This and we're story, still living with this This story. is so fascinating. We are still because living there's so with much those here. recommendations. We're, we're seeing these same patterns of behavior going on today. Yes. Very similar. Yeah. So first thing. With Ansel Keys doing this work, number one, we've got to talk about the fact that so much of our nutrition advice is based on observational data. Oh, Can you talk a little bit about it's my that? Because subject, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> giving a talk at Whole Foods next next week uh, okay. at, uh, about nutrition mythology, and one of the things I'm going to address is why well, you can't believe anything about nutrition research. So, sadly, almost every recommendation you hear. Whether, you, whether it's the good stuff we agree with, like you should eat a lot of nuts and blueberries, even stuff like that, or the stuff like green tea causes a, a cancer and causes cancer, or whatever, whatever ingredient to the moment they think. It, those are based on what's called observational or epidemiological studies, which we call the redheaded stepsister of scientific research. So an observational study is when you watch it, you don't do anything. You don't intervene. You don't like take this group and give them this drug and then this group gets a placebo and then you met. It's not that. It's the opposite of that. It's like you go into a community and you ask the people, what do you guys eat? And you make a chart and you compare some things and you look at the end results and how many of them actually, you know, are, are, get sick with a given endpoint. And you make some hypotheses. Right. It looks like there's more lung cancer among the people who smoke. Let's investigate that hypothesis. Could be that the people who smoke are also eating some kind of horrible carcinogen, and that's what's really causing the cancer. We don't know. We need to do a test. But it sure looks like smoking is related to lung cancer. What we did with this stuff is they observed things like Ansel Keys did, they didn't test it. They didn't do clinical studies on it. They didn't say, let's take one group and feed them saturated fat and one group and feed them vegetable oil. Let's see what happens. Let's keep it a controlled experience. Nobody did that. All they did was, it looks to us, 
look to Ansel Keys and Walt Willett from Harvard and the other people who bought into this, it looks like the Italians are really, and that's the Mediterranean diet. And that's, which, which is another myth because there's 22 countries in the Mediterranean, folks, they don't all eat the same diet. Mm. It's another created yeah. myth that we all, they all eat olive oil and no meat and all that stuff, which isn't true. But the point is, it was observational. And observational studies are meant, like I said, to suggest a hypothesis that sounds reasonable that you can then get funding for and do a clinical test to see if it's true. Nobody did that. And in fact, it's come out that there were little pockets where they actually did something like that when they tested the saturated versus the unsaturated. The people with, who ate all the vegetable oil and the margarine actually had higher rates of heart disease. So anytime that they actually tested it, it turned out to be wrong. But the observation was this, and it has served as the guidelines for our agricultural policy, for our dietary policy. In medicine? All, in medicine. In healthcare, in, the whole it's nine. It's the standard of practice. You got it is, lower that's people's nuts. cholesterol. Yeah. Johnny, how is this possible? Okay, so. How is it possible? <laughs> okay. We're now, in the same country. <laughs> just, to, just to be clear, right, right. Just to be clear, and what I really love about this is that we both know observational studies can yield some good data. But here's the thing. I remember this from elementary school because what that brings forth is a hypothesis, which in elementary school, it's an educated guess. An educated, an educated guess is a brilliant. Guess. I want an educated now, guess. But then we take that now and now we study it. Now we do a randomized controlled trial and we actually see we have a specific implement to measure a specific outcome. Yeah. And people that have been listening to the Model Health Show for, for some time now, you can hear it in my voice when you listen to past episodes and when you listen in the future. Whenever I talk about a randomized controlled trial, my tone changes, mm -hmm. my, my, my dictation changes because I know like, listen, this is some really good data here versus the observational stuff, which again, can yield some good data. But when we base our entire system of food, which is what our bodies are made of, off of observational data, with all the scientific application we have possible, it is a huge, huge problem. It is. Let me play devil's advocate on a, against a position we both hold. Um, science, even randomized control studies, can be subject to confirmation bias, to, uh, out, to influences that aren't exactly objective. It, it, um, the drug companies, once they started running with this, have lots of studies showing right. that statins prevent heart disease, except they don't. But what the studies actually show is, and again, it depends. I've seen these reanalyzed. How you, how you, uh, they may say that there were, well, I'll give you a perfect example, Lipitor. This is, this is the best example, the classic example. It's in the book, and it's also something people can Google. So when Lipitor, which is one of the biggest statin drugs, first came out and was one, at one time the biggest selling drug in the world, uh, was, the, I think, the first statin. Multi-billion yeah, dollars. Yeah, multi. So when Lipitor first came out, they had an ad. And it was, uh, it was by a famous cardiologist, the guy who invented the artificial heart, or somebody like, someone with a lot of credibility. And Lipitor prevents one in three heart attacks. 33% reduction in heart attacks. 33 production. Think about that. If you are at risk for heart disease, are you not grabbing that drug? Okay, so here's how those statistics came out. They had, if you take 100 men, and you followed them for five years, the statistical average is three of them will get a heart attack in five years. If you do a controlled group of that 100 men who are matched, 
and you give them Lipitor for five years at a cost that we won't even talk about, but nobody cares because it's paid by insurance, two men will get a heart attack. There's a one-third reduction in heart attacks in that group. Instead of three, it was two. Now does it sound as impressive? And, mm. by the way, we didn't mention the side effects in the group that took the Lipitor, like elevated blood sugar, higher incidence of diabetes, but one-third less heart attacks because instead of three heart attacks over the course of five years, there were two. Would you take a drug if it was presented this way? This is going to reduce your risk of heart attack. It's going to give you a likelihood of muscle pain, loss of libido, loss of memory. All of these side effects are possible, and, the, and what you get out of the deal is instead of a one a, – a, 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 Three in a hundred chance, you get a two in a hundred chance. It's mm. basically a one percent right. change. That's that's Would something you take we've that talked drug? about. Hell no. We've talked about this absolute risk reduction versus relative risk exactly. reduction. It's all they phrasing use... with these different studies. They can structure things and communicate to the public what they want based on what you just said, a confirmation bias. So folks that are sharing uh peer-reviewed evidence, we have to be aware of those you things. We have to be aware of that. And also we have to be aware of who's funding the study. What's the agenda behind it? There's so much wonderful science that, you know, scientists are just trying to figure out and get evidence out to people, get the truth out to people about certain things. But more often than not, especially what's published, there's, a, there's an agenda behind it. There is, and I don't want anyone to get the idea we should never listen to science, we should question all authorities, that there are no such thing as experts. That's not true at all. Um, you know, Winston Churchill said this about democracy. It's an absolutely horrible system, but it's better than anything else we have. I mean, science as it's done now and it's as used now for commercial purposes and, and, and with, uh, you know, lots of um, uh, corporate interests. And, and as you said, the drug companies design studies. There's evidence showing that when, when you pay for a study, you're five times more likely to get a positive result. So all of that is true. doesn't mean that science is no good and that their experts are all lying, but it says that we as consumers need to be aware of these forces that tend to produce results, which are then shined up and presented like one-third reduction in heart attacks when it's actually a 1% reduction in heart attacks from 3% to 2%. Yeah. Oh, this is so good. So again, we just did an episode talking about absolute risk reduction That's what and we're talking about relative right risk reduction in regards to recent vaccines. So we'll put that into the show notes for folks. That's for another day. That's for another day, but, but wow, good one, man. What I want to ask you about is with that observational data, there was a massive change in the way that the public perceived food. And we went to war with fat. We went to war with dietary we fat. Did. So can you talk about the implication, what, what did that lead oh, to? What happened God. in our society? And also talk about, in your book, you mentioned there's a, there's a sidebar, which is a great story about the snack well phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Well, anyone who was around for that low-fat madness back in the 80s and, and early 90s, when I started my career as a personal trainer, we were all into low fat. That was the thing. And Snackwell was this horrible junk food cookie that had managed to take all the fat out. And, and nobody was looking at sugar then. So here you had, you had the, 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 the poster child, the Wikipedia poster child for like low fat crap food. That was like, nonetheless, it didn't have any fat in it. And that was the standard by which we judge it. So the snack wall phenomenon was here's a here's an absolute junk food laden with sugar and starch and chemicals, but it meets the standard of not having fat. And that's and half the foods in the grocery store are like that now. Yeah. They were throwing that label on there like crazy. This is when marketers 
and the media jump on things as well and take science that again is a hypothesis and turn it into apparent truth in the public eye. It's absolutely true. Yeah. So what happened when we shifted over from removing fat from food and replacing that with what? Yeah, well, replacing it with sugar and with starch. I mean, food tastes horrible when there's no food, when there's no um, fat in it. And, and the only way they could make it edible was to, to sweeten it profusely with all kinds of stuff. And we wound up eating very high carb diets, which is what was recommended to us by every food pyramid. Even the my plate version, they're all the same crap. It's always high in carbs. And there's a reason for that too, which I would love to talk about that a lot of people don't know, but that's what's been recommended to us. And what happened, you ask, what happened in those 50 years? We got fat, sick, tired, and depressed as a nation. And we have a new term called diabesity, which we didn't have before because diabetes, obesity, Actually, as I say in the book, heart disease, Alzheimer's, one long continuum, um, all came from this insane diet that was never even close to what the human genus was set up to run on. So I, this, I love you, man. This is, <laughs> this, is, this is why, <laughs> and this is so obvious. Again, we made this big shift as a culture. Yeah. We pulled the fat out. Look at the results. Look at what happened. Everything got exponentially worse. And, and it's not people's fault. I mean, no one, if you're a consumer and you don't follow this stuff and you don't know epidemiological studies from randomized control studies and you don't know what we're, then who, how are you expected to? I mean, I don't know cars like I know this stuff. So I'm going to go to an expert and if they tell you that, you know, the seatbelt saves lives, I'm going to believe them. Right. And maybe it does. I have no way of knowing because I'm not expert in that field and people aren't expert in this. And they turn to experts and they don't realize to what extent the experts are influenced, not just by corporate kind of bribery. I'm not talking about that, but there becomes a zeitgeist. It's like what we saw with vaccines. It becomes a shared cultural belief. And the shared cultural belief for right or wrong has become that fat is the enemy. Fat makes us fat. Fat makes us diabetic. None of this is true. And there's research to show that. And what is true is that the stuff we were told to eat instead of fat, which is sugar and starch in every form you can imagine, from cereal to pasta to bread, all these healthy, low-fat foods are actually making us sick, giving us a condition called insulin resistance. And that is what's causing all the problems. You would think, again, over time that our beliefs would evolve, and they have more recently. But when I was in college, my very first nutritional science class, I was taught, you know, really watch your so fat. Was I? You know, so was increase I. your intake of carbohydrates, which again, it's not to, to, to vilify carbohydrates, but the ratio and how things change and the exclusion of fat. But also, I want you to talk about this because there was a different type of fat that was added to increase the shelf life because. Just being something that's kind of a stabilizer. Oh, trans fat? Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about that par partially hydrogenated oil. Par yeah, which is, by the way, um, in more foods than you realize, because in an, another example of the lobbying efforts of corporate America, trans fats, I'll give you the, the big picture first, is, is, a, is exactly what Sean said it is. It, it was an artificially made fat that has a longer shelf life, that doesn't spoil the way real food does and it can stay there forever. It's trans fats and Twinkies. I mean, they're, they're just, um, and what it is, is partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, usually soybean oil. Um, since trans fats were within everything, when the information started coming out that they are actually responsible for strokes and heart attacks and probably way worse than saturated fats ever were, which is 100% true, 
the industry pushed back a lot. And stuff like all of our products have this shit in it. What are we supposed to do? Retool every factory? Come on. So they fought tooth and nail. So finally, the, the law that went through was you have to label this product as zero trans fats, right? How do we define zero? Now the lobbying starts. Well, it's not really zero, right? You're going to let a little trace amount in, right? Well, how much is that trace amount? So they, they wound up saying, the, the, the agreed definition now is you can say zero trans fats if it has less than a half a gram of trans fats. And boy, that sounds reasonable. That's less than half a gram, right? So less, less than half a gram per what? Per serving size. Okay. Now you give them something to run with. The servings, they ever see those cookies where it says you get you buy a single cookie right. and it says it says the calories and it says serving size one third cookie. They started making serving sizes with trans fats of like a, a half a square butter. These ridiculously small serving sizes. And yes, each one had just under a half a gram. But by the time you ate an actual serving size, you were eating two to three grams of trans fats and you should be eating zero. So by a very clever labeling, and yeah. this is how you get around that, folks, ignore the zero trans fats, look at the ingredients. If it says partially hydrogenated, fill in the oil, soybean oil, canola oil, it's got trans fats. That's the definition of trans fats, whether the label says zero or not. Mm. I remember being, when I was in college and I was a strength conditioning coach, and again, learning from my professor that we need to eliminate fat, and go for the margarine, these kind of things. And I, I remember I had to go outside of what I was being, I was paying for that education. And thankfully, you know, I had some different folks that I came across, some of their research, and just start to study, looking at different articles. And just, it really, it was tough for me to, to accept that this was true because again, I'm paying for this education that's telling me something opposite. But then I remember this article coming out that they were, they were working to ban trans fats in restaurants in New York City. And this was, I think this was like the early 2000s. That sounds right. And I saw this article, I'm like, wait, this is mainstream news here. Everybody should know this by now. Mm -hmm. And for years, nobody knew. I would have clients coming boat, in, <laughs> I, we'd go and sit at my desk, my little station at the gym, and I would show them these articles. I'm like, look, what we've been taught is not accurate. Like, look at this. And then I would show them this cereal bar that I had in my book bag for years, still is probably Fresh is, mm -hmm. well, unfresh, right, I guess. Right, right, right. You know, zombified is the day that it was made. Zombie foods. And it's got this, you know, partially hydrogenated oil, high fructose corn syrup, all of these things. And, but yet it says heart healthy. It says, <laughs> you know, low fat. And it seems like it's this really healthy thing, but it's, yeah. it was other than. Well, um, that, is a, that is a huge problem. <laughs> to say <laughs> the least. It's a huge problem to, to say, say the, the least. least. So let's talk about one of these, and this is, why I'm so grateful to have you on and it's for this I'm reason right here, which is we, we made this shift as a, as a country. We wanted to get our citizens healthier. We wanted to be healthier. Nobody's waking up like, I hope I could be less healthy today. Right. And so we're following that guidance. And the shift that we made was pulling out dietary fat that, you know, humans have been Eating existing as long as, 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 long as we've been here. That's right. And now suddenly pulling those things out from real whole foods and right. replacing it with more carbohydrates, right. more sugar. Right. And fake fats, fake beef. We know that cholesterol is has also been demonized, but there's another culprit here that you mentioned this term earlier, and I want to dig into this, which is insulin resistance. Oh yes, please. Let's so talk how about do that. these two phenomenons intersect? Because 
when heart disease was a concern, mm-hmm. now it's an epidemic, yes. massive epidemic. Yes. Where yes. do these two things intersect? Very simple. So if you go back to what you and I were taught as trainers in the very, very beginning, it was all about calories. Calories in, calories out, right? And if you're taking more calories than you burn up, you're going to gain weight. And if you burn up more, all about calories. But calories, as, as I learned in the 90s, and I'm sure you agree, are stimulate hormones. So food doesn't just have a caloric effect. It has a hormonal effect. And one of the hormones that food impacts the most is one called insulin. And insulin is a fat storage hormone. Insulin's a very important hormone. You can't live without it. Type 1 diabetics don't make insulin. They, in the early part of the 20th century, they were dead before they were 20. You have to be able to make insulin. And one of insulin's jobs, one of its main jobs, is when your blood sugar goes up, insulin jumps into the fray it's it's like a sherpa and it comes it takes that blood that sugar from the bloodstream and it delivers it to muscle cells and that's a very good thing a because high blood sugar is very dangerous it gets for many reasons and two because the muscle cells need it because you're hopefully gonna you know go out and do some things that require energy what happened when we started eating now now different foods have different impacts on both blood sugar and on insulin Let's look at the three macronutrients. Carbohydrates, top of the line. Carbohydrates, you breathe a carbohydrate, up goes blood sugar and insulin. Now, some carbohydrates, not as much. Brussels sprouts, not very much. Broccoli, not much. But everything in the grocery store that comes in a box, up to the ceiling. I don't care if it's a complex carb, which is another term that's completely outdated. They are fast-burning carbs that drive your blood sugar up. And that's what we've been told to eat. So what happens now? Now you eat a normal breakfast, special K, an orange juice, a bagel, no fat. Don't forget that, right? Your blood sugar is on the roof. Insulin is pedaling along trying to get this sugar back out and get it into the muscles. But the the cells don't need, the muscles don't need it because your your lifestyle now is that you go to the office, you work behind a mouse the only exercise you get is that you go home you play with the clicker what are the muscle cells needed for so the cells now become resistant to the effects of insulin so now you've got high blood sugar and there's nowhere to go well the fat cells say we'll take it so now you start putting on fat particularly around the abdominal area but but dips then butt thighs and hips all, you know all the areas and you're still out of the diabetic range because that insulin is working so hard it's managing to keep your blood sugar just below the level at which they call it diabetic after a while the fat cells say no mas we we, we had enough now you got high insulin high blood sugar there's your definition of pre-diabetes, diabetes, and as we show in the book, diabetes is pre-heart disease, and all and insulin resistance is. They now call Alzheimer's type three diabetes because of insulin resistance. Every one of the COVID comorbidities, every one of them, lung, kidney, all of them, insulin resistance is a is a major factor. This is the metabolic disease of the century. Eighty-eight percent of Americans have some degree of it, and it is making us sick, fat, and tired. And we can change it with diet. Mm. Wow. So uh, uh, I'm so sorry that I didn't finish this part. So carbohydrates drive up blood sugar the most, and with it, insulin. Protein can raise blood sugar. There are amino acids that convert to glucose, and they Mm -hmm. will raise blood sugar, but nowhere near as much as carbs. You know what doesn't move the friggin' needle? Fat. The one macronutrient we were told to stay away from doesn't move the needle on blood sugar and insulin, which is what's causing us to be fat in the first place. 
So that's the, that's the, the irony of recommending a low-fat diet and a high-carb diet when really all of the, that, those recommendations guarantee that blood sugar is going to be elevated, insulin is going to go up, you're eventually going to get insulin resistance unless you're exercising like crazy to use up all that sugar. If you're Michael Phelps, maybe you won't get insulin resistance, but you eat our diet, you're going to get insulin resistance. And the proof is Science Daily, vet it, check it out, 88% of Americans have it. Yeah. And we'll put that for everybody in the show notes as well. Yeah. It was deemed that only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. That's what they're talking about. The other 88% have some degree. Not, you know, it's, it's in degrees, like with yeah. blood pressure. I mean, it goes from just a little bit of it. But if you have a little bit, it's likely to get more as you get older. And the solution is to stop eating the foods that drive it up. Yeah. At, at this point, we should be asking what changed when, when this number used to be flipped, where 12% of Americans were metabolically unhealthy. And now it's the vast majority. But we can do something about this. And I love that you're bringing this point up with... And it's one of the most important things with this conversation of insulin resistance because it's a driver of so many other issues. Oh, Heart disease, man. liver disease, Alzheimer's. the list goes on and on. Alzheimer's, because there's, we can have insulin resistance take place in the brain. The brain and that's can suck not up a good glucose. situation because your right. brain needs insulin. Yeah. And when it is deprived of insulin because insulin resistance body-wide, it's a very bad situation for the brain. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Researchers at Yale University School of Medicine, the researchers found that one of the biggest culprits behind our obesity epidemic is neuroinflammation. Brain inflammation increases the propensity of obesity and obesity increases the propensity, the likelihood of neuroinflammation. They go hand in hand. So we've got to address this. One of the things that's been proven to help to reduce neuroinflammation is cited in a study published in PLOS One. Public Library of Science One revealed that the super green algae spirulina has the potential to one, improve neurogenesis in the brain. So the creation of new brain cells, specifically the hippocampus is where we get a lot. And the hippocampus is the memory center of the brain. This is kind of important. And two, the study revealed that spirulina is able to directly reduce neuroinflammation. It's incredible. Right? This, it's helping the structural integrity of this master gland, this master organ controlling everything about us. Right? The most complicated object in the known universe is also one of the most fragile. We've got to protect it. This is why for myself and my family, spirulina, chlorella, ashwagandha, all of these powerful foods are put together in the incredible blend at Organifi. And this is a regular staple here in my family for good reason. Spirulina being one of the highlighted ingredients, not only does it have this benefit for neurogenesis and neuroinflammation, but also has rare nutrients like phycocyanin. The same thing with chlorella as well. That phycocyanin is one of the few things that can trigger stem cell genesis, right? The creation of new stem cells. Very few things have been found to do that. And then chlorella is in the formula as well. And that growth factor, the chlorella growth factor, it's just remarkable. And also it's benefits in helping your body to metabolize and eliminate heavy metals. And the list goes on and on, it's incredible. But the bottom line is this, it tastes good. It tastes good. I've experimented for, you know, at least about 15 years with all these different green formulas, these different green superfood blends. Many of them is not very good, okay? Many of them, like I, they shall remain nameless, but I've tried them, you know, back in the day before 
tasting good was an option. It's just like, just get it in by any means necessary. If you gotta do the whole pinch the nose and get it that whatever. But now pleasure leads to longevity. Pleasure leads to taking a practice on and imbibing it and making it a part of your routine, your habits, your, your daily life. So this is why I appreciate the fact that created a formula that actually tastes good, all organic, cold process, so you actually retain and get the nutrients that we're looking for in Organifi. So pop over there, check it out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash model. And you get 20% off, 20% off their green juice formula, their red juice formula, and also their gold as well. So they've got some incredible blends all done the right way with integrity, again, organic, low temperature processed, and yummy. All right. Organify, you got that yummy, yummy. Organify.com forward slash model. And now back to the show. So let's talk about how this directly influences um, cholesterol a little bit. Because, you know, with that blood sugar being what it is, you know, getting to that point where we become insulin resistant, your body is always trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So it'll ship it over to the liver mm -hmm. and we, fill up that liver glycogen, but eventually that gets filled up. We can't even store that much in Not the liver much. or the muscles. And now your body's like, what? I can't have this blood, this sugar just roaming around the bloodstream, tearing stuff up. Right. And so your body in its infinite intelligence can start to package it up and change it. Lipogenesis can mm -hmm. take place, mm -hmm. making fat, mm -hmm. making new particles, carriers, VLDL, mm -hmm. For example, you are hundred percent right. Let's talk about that. How that plays a role in cholesterol, with insulin resistance being a driving force. Well, it, the simplest way to explain that is fat doesn't make you fat. It never has. Carbohydrates do, because as we've just seen, carbohydrates are the stimulus for a hormone whose job it is <laughs> to get that sugar out of the bloodstream and store it any way it can. And if the muscles don't want it, it's going to make you fat. So the so meanwhile, while we're looking at cholesterol and we're not looking at blood sugar and insulin and and this measurable thing called insulin resistance, we're kind of leaving out the most important risk factor, and we're concentrating on this molecule. I always used to say when we were attacked in nine eleven, we wanted to go after terrorists. We wanted to right. So nobody knew exactly where they were. Somebody had, someone had a theory that like, yeah, we want to go after terrorists. I think there's a guy in Portugal in his mother's basement that like has a, uh, would you go after the terrorists in his mother's basement in Portugal? You've got these countries that want to, you got to go after the most important risk factor, the thing that's really going to take you down. And it ain't that guy in Portugal and in heart disease, it's not your HDL and LDL cholesterol. It's what's going on with insulin, metabolism, the destruction of that whole pathway so that insulin just isn't effective anymore and everything that goes with that, which is an increased risk for every one of the metabolic diseases. This is so simple. You, what, what you just shared really just came to, to life for me. Really? So thank you. For everybody to understand this, when we're talking about insulin resistance and we're talking about blood sugar, it's as if psychologically, blood sugar doesn't impact our blood pressure. It doesn't impact <laughs> our heart health, our cardiovascular right. health. Or our mood or, or our energy or anything yeah. else like that. And so with that said, having abnormal blood sugar having the creation of VLDL, very low dense lipoprotein mm -hmm. right. particles, we're creating this situation in our bloodstream 
where it's heightening the risk of events taking place. Without question, in measurable ways, and it's all in the literature, and you can go to PubMed, put an in insulin resistance, pick your disease, and you'll be reading forever. Mm. Well, what I'm hearing too is that there's going to be an inherent inflammatory component to this oh, situation. <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah. And I mean, these things go hand in hand. When, first of all, Oh, there's so many things to say about that. I mean, first of all, the very foods that we've been told to eat are very inflammatory. They're pro-inflammatory. And um, your audience certainly knows this. I mean, inflammation is a silent killer. It got that title on Time magazine back in the... There's inflammation, the silent killer. Well, it's not so silent anymore. People now know about it, but it is still a killer. And it happens because so many things cause inflammation, stress, chemicals, recreational drugs, prescribed drugs, the air we breathe, the water we drink, all of these things have irritating components to them. And when they get into the gut and you're eating lots of inflammatory things, like for example, gluten that nobody knew about 20 years ago, but you know, they thought, oh, well, some people have celiac disease. The rest of us don't have to worry about it. No, it's a very highly inflammatory substance that bothers a lot of people. And if you get that kind of inflammation in the gut, well, everything falls apart because now you have leaky gut now it means things get into the bloodstream that didn't belong there. The immune system mounts an attack. Now this is where autoimmune disease comes in. So you've got to heal that inflammation. And, and the inflammation is part and parcel of the diet that we're eating and the lifestyle that we live. You know what? There's so much. I'm so, I'm so grateful that you're out doing this work. And a lot of folks don't know that so much of the, the data from many health professionals, you really helped to impress this upon culture. You know, your book, The Great Cholesterol Myth, this is a newer version. This is revised and yes, expanded. Yes, this is the one to get. Don't get the old one because this is the one that sh that where we found the insulin resistance connection. And so you've been talking about this for years and years and years, and it's made its way into more, uh, more health circles in a major, major way. Of course, you know, and this is why you're so passionate about this. There's still so much work to do. There is. But I'm so grateful that you're, that you're doing this work. But I want to know, where did all of this start for you? What is your superhero um, origin story, Johnny? <laughs> How, what got you interested in health and fitness in the first place? Well, I, I don't know if you know this. I've told this before, but um, I, you know, I was a professional musician. Oh, you didn't know Didn't that. know this. So I was a professional musician in New York City. I, I went to Juilliard. Um, I was a sex, drugs, and rock and roll person. I was from the post the Woodstock generation, and everything that you can imagine a musician did. I mean, I did drugs. I, I coffee and cigarettes for my breakfast. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I mean, I was fat, I, but I, I was good enough to earn a living at it. And uh, I got, I kicked the my major drugs, which were heroin, cocaine, and alcohol, in the early eighties. And said goodbye. And I was touring. I was doing a lot of Broadway shows that had pop rock feels like Joseph and the Mason, Tanfield and Dreamcoat, Little Shop of Horrors. And we would tour. We'd do these, what they call bus and truck tours or national tours. And you'd sit down in a city for a week at a time and you'd set up and you'd do the sound check and you had the days free. So there I am in these towns with these actors whose job it is to stay in shape. And I'm bored and I'm newly sober or more or less, I mean, off, off those things and very interested in like, so I literally, I remember it was in Connecticut. And I said to one of the actors who was really into this, I said, show me how to do one of these weightlifting. How do you do this? I'd like to have some muscles maybe one day. 
And man, that was just the beginning. And I started hanging out with them. I started learning how to do the weights. I, they started taking me to the gym with them. And I had life changing. I mean, it was like, holy shit. And soon I knew where every gym was in every town. You know, there weren't big chains. It was Doug's Gym in Dallas. Was, you know, these hole-in-the-wall places. I knew where the health food stores were. This is prior to Whole Foods. And, um, this I, is in New York City. New York and my touring. And I lived touring, in New York City, touring. yeah. But uh, what I decided to do, being a kind of a middle class, upper middle class, academically inclined New York Jew, was I want to get a degree in this. You got to be able to get a degree in this because you're not legit unless you have a degree in something, right? So I figured, maybe is, is there a degree in personal training? And sure enough, there was American <laughs> Council on Exercise and, and AFA and NASM. And so I got them all. Mm. I got every one of them <laughs> and I, I think i had six all together and equinox was opening its first club in new york city in 1990 on amsterdam avenue and they had a big sign it says new gym coming to new york hiring trainers i walk in i'm still a professional musician but I'm, i know we're gonna i'm gonna be in new york for a while i don't have a gig and i said i'm a trainer i have a certain and for reasons beyond me I connected with that, the Erico family who owned it and, and um, who started it. And we just connected. I was in my 40s. I was older than most of the other trainers, but I also had a master's in psych and I could speak English. And I was like, oh, we like this guy. We could use him. And they hired me. And I started on the floor of Equinox in 1990. And I was there for seven years. I became the dean of the Equinox Fitness Training Institute. And um, I was a low-fat, true believer. I was one of those guys that if you ordered an egg white omelet, the most boneheaded thing I've ever heard of, you ordered an egg white omelet like I did and it came with a little of the yellow, I'd send it back because I was quite sure I was gonna get a heart attack if I ate any of that yellow yeah. in the egg. So I was that. And we taught our clients that. We trained them that way. And we believed, mea culpa, I apologize for this, we believed if they weren't losing weight, they were lying, mm, they yeah. were cheating. Yeah. We couldn't believe our own evidence, that, our, that our, our advice was boneheadedly wrong. We couldn't think. And there is, by the way, a TED lecture, highly recommended. Peter Atiyah, one of the great doctors, gave a, a speech when he was almost in tears talking about the harm he did his diabetic patients, thinking they were lazy and that they, this was not hormonal, that this didn't have any, you know, that it was just a willpower thing. So that's what we did. And we thought that they were lying. And in the midst of this, Atkins had published the New Diet Revolution. The Atkins Diet was third edition, came out in 1992. And we had clients who said, dude, I'm going to try this Atkins thing. I got a golf pro, just lost 50 pounds on it. And, you know, my hairdresser says it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And we would say, you cannot do this high fat. This guy's a quack. He should lose his medical. He's telling people not to eat complex carbs and to eat bacon. He's out of his mind. You can't do it. You might lose some weight, but you'll get a heart attack. Uh, they didn't listen to us <laughs> and they would come back and they were better. Their eyes were brighter. They were losing weight. It was visible. They would come back with blood tests that I didn't even know how to interpret, but the doctor thought was much better. So now I had this dissonance. Here's a guy standing in front of me who just lost 25 pounds and looks perfectly good and his doctor's report is great, but I've been told the Atkins diet kills you. Something doesn't fit. Yeah. And I began teaching my trainers and talking at conferences and saying, you know, there may be some misinformation here about fat. It's not really been. And immediately they all said, 
What does he know? He's not even an MD. He's not even a nutritionist. Now, nobody said this when I was preaching low fat and right. nobody right. questioned that. They, oh, he's the best teacher we've ever seen, right? Now it's like, who's that guy? So I, I was getting stronger and stronger in my convictions. I was not only seeing patients like this, I was reading research and going, you know what? None of this is born out. This is just not, we, this isn't so. It's not true. And the only way I could get anyone to listen to me was to go back to the room and get a bunch of letters. So I did. So I went back. I got a board-certified nutritionist now with a PhD in holistic nutrition and my master's in psych. I'm board-certified. And then I said to the same people I had been saying it to, guess what, guys? Mm. You're full of shit. This isn't true. Mm. And I, you know, you asked where did it start? I, I, from when I was five, I didn't like bullying. Mm, I'm yeah. very anti-bully. Yeah. You want to get me just like out of my mind, show me like unfair bullying. And to me, this is bullying by the medical profession. This is bullying by the USDA telling us what to eat when in fact these foods are causing us to be sick, fat, tired, and depressed. This is the doctors who tell their patients, and I've had clients who told me this, I can't treat you if you won't go on a statin drug. Yeah. Yeah, that's bullying. So that is part of the passion that informs me. And the fact that we can cure this stuff with diet <laughs> and is, is just enough to make me a little crazy. Your story is so incredible, Johnny. Thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, man. It's just, it's, that's an adventure through life, you know. And th the beautiful thing for me is the fact that, you know, you being here right now and seeing your energy and seeing you walking the talk and showing us what's possible you know, you were there at Equinox in the early 90s, <laughs> Great place. you know, really working there. What you wanted to do, I'm sure you tapped into that, like wanting to serve. And but you also had this awareness when something isn't working out to question a little bit. And also when you start to see evidence of the contrary, that takes a lot of courage, because as you mentioned, when you were lockstep with the the popular paradigm, nobody said anything to you. Nobody no. questioned anything. And that's like it's like that with a lot of things. It's the same thing. And you highlight that throughout the book as well. And, you know, there's many stories throughout history when things are going along with, you know, science that is outdated, when science that is flat out wrong, but it's accepted in culture. And again, like, look at our society right now. Have we gotten better? But when you question that and the underlying triggers for those things, and as a matter of fact, when you bring up solid science that says to the contrary, Folks are often demonized and, and, and vilified for oh, man. many, many years and sometimes decades. Sometimes they pass away before their truth oh, yeah. is accepted as a cultural, uh, a cultural norm. Even the, you know, Inez Semmelweis and hand washing, you know, and the, just the list goes on and on for many different things. And I want to talk to you about this one specifically because I don't think we deeply understand. Many people do, you know, that listen to this show just how powerful when we're talking about changing the paradigm with a drug for example the statin you've got to understand you highlight this in the book this is a 31 billion dollar a year industry yeah. targeting something that is blatantly untrue and right now we've got to understand when you start to dip into their pockets and understanding the the motives behind it with statins. Again, this might have even started with a good intention, but it's it's gotten far, far from that. Oh yeah. So I want folk, I want you to talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about the pharmaceutical industry side of it, you know, when it comes to statins. And again, I've been in my clinical practice, we're talking, you know, I've been in this field for, for 20 years now almost. 
And it's, I'm shocked that we're still even talking about this because, and this is what I want you to talk about. So number one, the, the, the industry side, and also what are the ramifications of statins? Because we've talked a little bit about that. Is there any tie-in with insulin resistance with being on a statin? Is there any tie-in with increased risk of, you mentioned potentially you know, cognitive issues, erectile dysfunction, that has to do with circulation. Those, as are, well. those are the main so side could this be potentially contributing to the problem so let's talk about those things sure i i want to just go on record as saying i'm not 100 percent universally demonizing statins for all circumstances even my co-author the cardiologist steve sinatra rarely uses statins says they there have their are place. cases in which and i'm going to give you here's a really great example if we can just take off one one um moment to go on the sidebar whereas i believe that since we're using the old test, many people are over-prescribed statins because they have high LDL and they're not looking at what kind. There are people who are being under-prescribed and I'm one of them and I'll, I'll explain that. I have had wonderfully normal LDL all my adult life. Every doctor looks at it and goes, ha, no problem, you're great. When I learned this, I started getting the real test, the NMR particle test, the one that the lipid profile, the advanced lipid, they're called different things. Every lab has them, LabCorp, Quest, they all have it. They look at the number of particles and stuff. All of a sudden, I come back in the high risk range. I have way too many particles. They're in the red zone and they're the wrong size. They're the nasty little BB gun ones and not the big fluffy ones. This is information that matters. So I am not out of risk because those are risk factors I do think are important. They're not the only ones. I'm going, you know, lots of other risk factors that are in the bottom, but they are one to be concerned about. And in my case, I was probably being undertreated. I would be, if I wasn't so nervous about statins, I would probably be a great candidate for one. And you would be missing that if you were only looking at the good and bad cholesterol. Now, as it turned out, I changed those numbers and I did it with a very targeted set of supplements and I was able to avoid the statins. But there are places. It's just that we're diagnosing them based on the wrong test. So some people get missed. And some people are probably walking around with statins that don't need to be. Now, you asked, what are the side effects? There's a very interesting study. Your audience loves studies. Beatrice Gollum at Stanford, not a bad university, wanted to find out if the side effects on statins were being fairly reported. And so she served, She did a, it's a classic study. It's published. Just put Gollum statins into PubMed. Uh, and she found that 65% weren't reported. And the reason for that across the board was that the doctors didn't think these side effects or adverse reactions were being caused by the statins. They had been so brilliantly marketed by the representatives of statin drugs that when the guy comes in and says, you know, doc, ever since you put me on a crest or I'm, I'm kind of forgetting my wife's name. Don't worry. It's a little mild. Don't worry, Mr. Jones. You're just getting older. It's a little mild cognitive impairment. Guys, I play tennis with it. Go in. I'm having leg pains. I've got all these crampy things I didn't have before. Don't worry. It's a little arthritis. You're just getting a little old. So they did not believe because the statin manufacturers had been so good at convincing people, much like the vax deniers, you know, that, oh, yeah, they're just anti-vaxxers. They don't have any legitimate questions to raise because they're just the nutcases. And that's what the, what the statin manufacturers through the American Heart Association have done. I've seen them go on Good Morning America and say, yeah, well, there's a lot of statin deniers. They're just, you know, they're yeah. just... It's dismissive. Yeah. And, and so most doctors don't actually report them as adverse effects related to, side of, to, to statins, but they are.
Mm. And, and Golem has a whole list of the number and the number that patients have reported and the percentages and all of that stuff. And it's just very clear that most doctors don't believe those side effects have anything to do with statins. Yeah. And I would think, again, just to, to look at the results, has our mission of targeting cholesterol in this particular way, has it reduced the incidence of heart attacks and, and heart disease? And that was the question you'd want to know, right? What they tend to do, because these studies tend to not last very long, is they use what's called surrogate methods, measures. They use the measurement of cholesterol as a surrogate for heart disease. It's not. So what they're able to show is, look, we reduced heart disease by whatever percent, but what they did is they reduced cholesterol. And they're assuming that everybody thinks that because they reduced cholesterol, they reduced the risk of heart disease because that's what we have been drilled into our heads. But in fact, when you look at the actual end result, which is, as you said, should be, did this person die or not? Did they have a heart attack or not? not I don't give a shit. If the cholesterol went down, are they dead or are they not dead? In fact, the statins don't save lives. There it is. There it is. In the book, you also talk about, uh, we, we've touched on this a little bit, but before your, your co-author on the book, mm. Dr. Steven Sinatra, yes. phenomenal, phenomenal Great guy. Uh, work as well. And he mentions he's been, I, I really understood the data and took more notice of it many years ago, maybe it's 10 years ago, hearing from him about CoQ10. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. And so- He loves that CoQ10. We also have found out, now we've got some solid data showing that statins also deplete the body of Completely. CoQ10. Absolutely. Increasing potentially the risk of heart disease. Absolutely. And the irony there, again, is that CoQ10 is needed for a healthy heart. It's an energy molecule. It's needed for energy. The heart is one of the organs that needs energy 24-7. It doesn't take a break. It absolutely needs this vital molecule. It's made in the same pathway. When you block that pathway, guess what? One of the side effects is you don't have any CoQ10. Merck, one of the, one of the big drug, you know, big pharma, has a patent for statin mixed with a CoQ10, and they didn't manufacture it because they thought nobody even knows about this. So everybody knows that CoQ10 is depleted. And if doctors aren't telling you, if you're giving you a statin, they're not telling you to take 200 milligrams a day of CoQ10. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So again, this is just reiterating, everything has its place, but just haphazardly throwing statins at people in the way that we have as a society. Number one, it hasn't worked in, in a significant way. And also the potential downsides. It's, downsides as, if, it's as if it doesn't come with this cost. So let's talk about this because I want to dig deeper here. In the book, you talk about the politics of publication, and you mentioned the National Cholesterol Education Program <laughs> that lowered the, quote, optimal cholesterol yeah, levels they keep doing it. in 2004. As you mentioned, they keep dropping they keep it down dropping it because, because it's not time working. Every you got 10 million more patients to, to get insurance um, uh, reimbursement for sentence. Mm. Because if now the ideal level is this, and you're, if you're here and that's considered normal, but now we can make that normal, well, now you have a disease. Right. Go from 160 to 150. Yeah. You know? Now, let's be very clear. When you go down in cholesterol, this, it's called a J-curve. <laughs> what happens is the, the lower you go, the higher the risk for accidents, suicides, death from all causes, all these other things. Why accidents? I've always wondered this. Why accidents and suicides? And the hypothesis that I have, untested, is that cholesterol is needed for your brain to work properly. And when it isn't there, 
there's a lot of stuff goes wrong. And, and so there are, but the correlation with higher death rates from all these things is, in, is not um, arguable. That's in the data. Yeah. Cholesterol is so important for your brain. Your brain makes it. Yeah. You know, your brain really has it on uh, ready to order. So in this, the National Cholesterol Education Program, you mentioned that eight out of nine of the people on the panel oh. creating this that had was financial ties to the pharmaceutical they industry. They did. And I think we listed them in there. I think, thank you. Thank you, Gary Taubes, for that information. He's the guy that keeps track of all that. But yeah, there were, there were nine people on the panel when this was originally done back in the 80s, and eight of them had ties to the drug industries. Same old game. Same old game. You mentioned this. I, this is one of my favorite quotes in the book. Okay. And this is so powerful. This is from okay. Upton Sinclair. Oh. It says, quote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it, unquote. Can't improve on that. Kind of says. Yeah. And I want to say again, I, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think these doctors are bad people. They, they have four minutes to read the journal articles. They're not reading nutrition. They've been taught since medical school that nutrition doesn't matter. Um, and, and they're, they're overworked. They got seven minutes to see a patient. They've got these people coming into their offices every day who are drug reps, telling them all the wonderful with the color coded charts, how great their drugs are performing here. Have some samples, try them out. They're not bad people. It's just the system is set up to not really give us accurate information when commercial interests are as involved as they are in heart disease. So it doesn't mean we can't get information. It means we've got to work a little harder and we can't go use CNN headlines as, as a source. Well, this leads into finding out and being more empowered to find out what are our risk factors? What tests should we be doing? And you've done a great job of expanding this in the book for folks to, if we're, we can't just take this blanket approach to cholesterol anymore, what no. are some of the more accurate testing methods that we can look at? Well, again, we're not just talking, I think I want to make a distinction between more accurate testing for cholesterol and more accurate testing for risk factors and disease. Right. Because insulin resistance doesn't tell you anything about your cholesterol, but it's damn well an important risk factor that we need to be looking at. You had mentioned inflammation. I know that's a big issue for you. There are inflammatory measures that you can test in the body. A CRP, high sensitive CRP, gives you a general inflammatory index for your body. The inflammatory cytokines are tests that can be gotten. Um, the two that I like to tell people about that are in the book that you can do at home with no money and no technology uh, so there's four ways to measure insulin resistance, and obviously they go up in accuracy and the lab tests are the best, but here's, the, here's a nice home, home version of this. You stand in front of a wall. You face the wall. You walk to slowly towards the wall. If your belly hits the wall before your nose, 95% chance insulin resistance. Mm. That's the telltale apple-sized belly because that's where you store that fat when insulin is going, nobody wants it, nobody. The belly says, I'll take it, I'll take it. So there's a great low-tech measure. Here's another terrific measure. Anyone who's ever had a blood test, even if it's the most antiquated, anti antiquated blood test ever given, it's going to have your HDL, it's going to have your triglycerides. They all have HDL, LDL, triglycerides, and blood sugar. Every basic test in the world has those. You're going to take two numbers from that. You're going to take your triglycerides and your HDL. Usually, triglycerides are the bigger number. So you do the ratio. If your triglycerides are 100 and your HDL is 50, which is great, your ratio is 2. 
because 50 goes into, right? And that's how you do ratios. I can't do them in my head much more complicated than that, but it's basically if your triglycerides are 90 and your HDL is 30, you have a ratio of, of three. That ratio is more predictive of heart disease and of insulin resistance than any cholesterol test. Mm. Why the triglycerides? That's the ratio. Well, first of all, triglycerides are a big risk factor on their own. Right. That's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, triglycerides are a risk factor independently of all this stuff. But that ratio seems to be correlated. When it's a, when it's a low ratio, say two, which is the 100 for triglycerides, most people don't have that, and 50 for HDL, I wish I had that, that's a ratio of two, you're not getting a heart attack. And there are some people, I've, I've seen clients where their, their HDL is actually higher than their triglycerides. Like a woman with a 90 of HDL and triglycerides of 80, it's under one, the ratio. It's just not going to happen. I, the research is very clear on, on the predictive value of the, H, of the triglyceride to HDL test. And everyone can do that with their own blood test and, and kind of see. And it's very hard, you may disagree, it's very hard to raise your HDL. Mine has genetically been around 39 for 30 years. I did 39, 40, 38, 41. It just doesn't budge. They tell us exercise can do it, right? But there's an easy way to change that ratio because triglycerides can be changed like that. So if you have the same low HDL like I do, 39, right? Your triglycerides are 150. That ratio is like five, you're dead. What's <laughs> going to drive those triglycerides up? Carbs. When you, here's, here's a research finding that goes across the board. I beg you go to Google and check this out or just go to PubMed. When you go on a low carb diet, I don't care whether you lose weight or not. I don't care what else happens. Triglycerides drop like a rock. Bam. Every single time, almost a hundred percent of the time. So if I've got a ratio of five, very bad, I've got my cholesterol, let's say is uh, 30. 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, and I got 150 triglycerides. I have a five, very dangerous. If I can drop those to 90 with a low-carb diet, all of a sudden my ratio went to three. And if I can drop them even more, they drop like a rock. Very easy to fix your triglycerides with a low-carb low diet, high-fat. Aren't triglycerides traveling around in those carrier molecules? They are. They are in the lipoproteins, absolutely. They're part of the what makes one... A high density and one a low density is what combination of cholesterol, triglycerides, and protein that they have. Yeah. Some are heavier than others. Those are the low density, uh, the high density ones. Others float to the top. Those are the low density ones. Mm. So obviously, again, this is leaning towards really looking at what's happening with our blood sugar. Mm. Blood sugar. And what about, in particular, looking at cholesterol, expanding that? What about ApoB and particle size, for okay. example. So ApoB is a great marker for the number of particles. Mm -hmm. When you have a doctor who absolutely says, I don't know what this particle stuff is, this BS, and it's completely out of the loop, you can usually get them to do an ApoB test because that's in the cardiology guidelines. So an ApoB is just a protein molecule that attaches to every LDL boat. So if you won't get them to, they don't measure the, the total number of boats, which is what I would like to see, because that also looks at the size and all that. An ApoB test is a good, good surrogate for that, because there's basically one ApoB molecule for every LDL. So mm. it's kind of like a particle test. I'm not, I'm not sufficiently medically sophisticated to tell you the slight differences in there. But I've heard long discussions about them, but it's a very good surrogate for the particle size. Um, and what was the other part that you... Particle size. That was the that, particle yeah. size is, is important because, again, I used the analogy before. If it's a little golf ball, if it's a little small thing, it, it's usually very oxidized and inflamed. And think of you through 
a small little like marble that was inflamed with fire. You threw it at a tennis um, net. It, it could either get caught in there or set it on fire or do something. Bad. But what if the molecule was like a big fat cotton ball? You throw it at the net, nothing happens. So the size is very indicative of the likelihood of the damage. And, you know, the smaller ones get caught in parking spaces in the arteries that they don't belong, that causes more inflammation, more oxidation, eventually plaque, all of that stuff happens when they get caught in the wrong place. And the big ones don't get caught there. So that's why we need the size. Mm. This is so important and so powerful. So I want to give folks this take home, and I know you've seen this as well, that folks get this education. They look into these things themselves. They want to get some more accurate testing. Maybe they're on a statin right now. Maybe they're at risk for heart disease from their perspective. And they're wanting to get more accurate testing done, but then there's pushback yeah. from their uh, healthcare provider. Can you talk a little bit about that? What do we do in that situation? And also, if you can, I think this is also an issue related to the slow nature of science changing <laughs> and things being it's covered boat, with insurance. Man. Let's talk about that. It's a slow boat. And, and it's out of my pay scale. I, I, when people ask me, for example, what is the best doctor to see for Hashimoto's or any, any condition that's complex? In my, I can tell them the best doctor. They don't take insurance. I can't solve that problem. That, that's a systemic problem that just tricks, it, it, it breaks my heart and it saddens me. You, you and Ann know, we talked about this at dinner, that one, a family member of ours has this and, and an awful condition and we cannot get her insurance covered credit and probably have to do cash pay. It's an awful problem. And the whole system is set up to kind of run business as usual. So it's not really, it, it doesn't really encourage this kind of innovation. It doesn't encourage a doctor to take the extra 15 minutes to read the journal articles and say, oh, you know, nobody else told me that, but I'll give that a shot. They just don't. And even when they're well motivated, I had a friend of mine put his cardiologist on the phone with me about this test. And the guy was like, this sounds great. I don't even know how to order this, but I want to do it. But it's, there's nothing set up for them to do that. And, and how does that get fixed? Man, I have no idea. Uh, my advice is stay out of the medical system. <laughs> That's kind of what to we do. To the best do, of your ability. Is, is to the best of your ability. When I was uh, at, at um, Equinox, uh, a friend of mine brought a very, very famous Broadway composer to see me. And he came in with a list of his medications. And he was six years younger than I am right now. And he walked in hesitantly. I could barely get in. And he gives me this yellow pad with all this shit. And one's on for depression and one's for blood pressure and one's for sleep. And I said, did the guy that gave you this ever talk to the guy that gave you this? No. Hmm. Did anyone ever look at like how these things interact? No. And all I could think is like, you know what? To the degree you can stay away from that, it's going to be a good thing. Nobody looks at the interaction of these medications. And even if they did, they don't look at it over the course of a lifetime, which is what people are taking. Right. So the more you can stay away from them. I'm not saying never take medicans, medications that can save your life, obviously. But people reach to medicalize things way too early and, and way too easily. There's not a drug for everything. Some things are life issues. That yeah. We, you know? Yeah. At this, we've got about 70% of our citizens on some form of prescription drugs. We've, we've done that thing. And again, things aren't really getting better. But thanks to your work, you know, how we can change this is folks like you. You know, and taking taking a few arrows over the years, but really coming out, you know, you, your your arrows, you pull those arrows out, Johnny, and you throw them back and you, you patch yourself up with, you know, some 
some gold and sparkles and you're just, <laughs> you're amazing, man. You're, you're shining and you're such an example and such an encouragement for me. So kind of you, but let me point out, I don't have a platform if it's not for people like you. If it's not for visionaries like you who say, this is information I want to, I don't have an audience other than people like you and Ivor and the other people who put me on podcasts. So thank you for that vision and for inviting me to share this time with you. Hey, it's been it's, fantastic. It's an honor. It truly is no, an honor. I feel doubly mine. You know, if you could, for folks to get more information, number one, you've got, I mean, some, your books are incredible, incredible. And the book that I have right here, The Great Cholesterol Myth, it's a must read, must read. We've got to change this. Enough is enough. And you've got some other books as well. Can you tell folks where they can pick up your books? Just give a quick word Amazon. about your other books. Amazon. All right. Yeah. The ones I like the most are the, the one that has nothing to do with this, which is the 150 healthiest foods on earth. And um, although there's some good stuff in there that questions of the demonization of fat and saturated fat and things like that. Um, and the Living Low Carb, which is my book about low carb diets in general. It's been updated four times with big sections on keto and bulletproof and the differences. And I interviewed everybody for it. And those are the ones I'm the proudest of. Awesome. Well, Dr. Bowden, you are a Johnny. superhero and thank you, man. I'm just so grateful for you and thank you for Me being too. a leader and a pioneer and an inspiration. We appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Awesome. Dr. Johnny Bowden, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. This topic is so important because I think it's another example of how we tend to isolate things and put things into parts in our conventional view about human health. And looking at this one targeted thing, cholesterol is being this massive villain. When in reality, the story is much more nuanced. It's much more complex and also much more wonderful than what we've been led to believe. And I think the biggest issue today is just the, the slow turtle-like sloth-like nature of things changing and being updated in university education, in the education that's been shared with the public, for example in the education that's sharing with practicing healthcare providers and practitioners, because this information oftentimes isn't readily available unless you're asking the, the right questions, unless you're really tapped in to a stream of things that are really cutting edge, which the, the science that Dr. Bowden talked about today is absolutely cutting edge. The way that we're testing for these things in regards to cholesterol is massively outdated. And it's, it has so many people stuck in the same vanilla view of heart disease and cholesterol that it's missing out on what some of the real risk factors are so we can actually do something about it. And so really grateful to have this conversation. And this is one to share up. This is one, this is how we change things even faster. We have mediums like this today where folks can get the education where they can get updated and they don't have to stop their lives to do it. This is a beautiful thing about podcasts. You know, people can listen in their cars and turn it into automobile university. They can listen while they're just hanging out, relaxing. They can listen, listen while they're cleaning up the house or, you know, out for a walk, whatever the case might be. We, we don't have to turn our lives upside down to get this education. It's such a beautiful, powerful medium. And again, this episode is one to share, to get into the hands of the people that you care about. So Share this out on social media, send it directly from the podcast app, text it to somebody that you care about because trust and believe right now, statins are still one of the primary money makers and drivers for, for the pharmaceutical industry. And again, there's a place where it's appropriate, 
But more often than not, it's a very blanket, superficial thing that's being done to try to address this heart disease risk. And it's missing out on the 99% of things that are really driving the issue of heart disease. And so we've got to get this conversation out there. That's how things change faster. And I appreciate you so much for doing that. We've got some epic shows. I'm talking about some powerful masterclasses, some world-changing thought leaders, and epic interviews coming your way very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you've got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.